We'll start off with some music, and this is Praise Gathering and Jesus, the Joy of Loving Hearts. And that was Praise Gathering with Jesus, the Joy of Loving Hearts. And that's actually the kind of tune that many older people like to sing. The reason, well, it doesn't go too high or it doesn't go too low. Coming up on Heart and Soul this morning, Michael Barclay completes his discussion with Peter Stanford. Malcolm Bright begins a new series. It's on the I, say, I Am Sayings of Jesus. Willie Wright tells us a bit about the hymn writer Francis Ridley Havergal, and towards the end of the programme, Adrian Plass reads a chapter from his book The Unlocking, and we'll also have a look at the notice board. Music again now. It's a hymn by Francis Ridley Havergal. It's sung by the St Michael Singers, and it's Like a River Glorious is God's Perfect Peace.
the St. Michael Singers and Like a River Glorious. And we'll be hearing about the writer of that hymn later on in the programme, but here's David to tell us what's coming up next. Michael Barclay has been talking to Peter Stanford about the book he wrote on angels, and here he asked him about Peter's own experience of the supernatural. We were talking earlier about angels, Peter Stanford, and how people naturally ask you when they hear you've written a book about them whether you believe in them. You said you've never actually seen an angel, but there are times when you've felt your life touched by some sort of supernatural presence. In my own life, as you say, I haven't seen uh, I haven't seen an angel. Uh, I obviously felt uh, guardian angels around me, but I suppose the thing that I believe in, I, I, I believe that has happened in my life, are those moments when we touch the transcendent. So we've talked earlier about my mother. My Catholicism comes from my mother. We used to go to Mass together uh, when she was a wheelchair user. It took the church a very long time to put a ramp in, but anyway, we've got to let these things go. But it was a, a, a kind of modern church with a marble floor, and so when the rubber of the wheelchair tyres would go across the floor it would make a very particular noise again because the pews weren't uh, adapted then we're talking about the 60s and 70s my mum would sit at the end of the row and she died in 1998 Um, she she lived with and she would say defeated multiple sclerosis and then pancreatic cancer uh, came and took her, which seemed very unfair, but but hey, that's life. Um, but um, she hardly knew my children. She um, she knew my son, uh, who is now twenty three. Uh, she held him and knew him for a while in his life. She never knew my daughter. Um, but sometimes when I'm sitting in church with them, uh, when they'll come with me now, uh, but when I used to make them when I was younger, because we all do what our parents did, um, uh, they used to be sitting there with me and there were moments when I was sitting in the pew and I could hear the rubber of the tyres and I knew that at the end of the bench my mother was sitting there with us. I also knew that if I turned and looked at her, Um, looked for her, looked at her, she wouldn't be there. But I knew in that moment that she was there. And you can tell me this is me being... You can hear, I I just find the whole thing uh, kind of emotional, really. But you you can tell me it's me being emotional, it's me being foolish, it's me projecting, it's me doing all of those things. And indeed, I have said that to people when they come and tell me their experience of angels. But I know that in that moment, I knew it to be true. Well, a nice note to play out on a song which has been very popular recently. Uh, And for you, it brings back your family, your childhood in Liverpool, because you'll never walk alone. Yeah, so I grew up in Liverpool. Um, My mother was one of nine. Uh, I have 23 first cousins, uh, all walking around Liverpool, most of them anyway. And there was always this kind of sense of of, of Liverpool being home. There's something about Liverpool. um, You don't just have a local pride when you come from there. You have a sort of fierce patriotism, and it is with you always. It never leaves you. (laughs) But the thing, when this music plays... Actually, I was talking about this with my sister, Sue, the other day, and she said, that always makes me cry, that piece of music. And I'm afraid this piece of music always makes me cry. This particular recording that I've chosen is a woman called Jennifer Johnston, who comes from Liverpool, and she is singing with the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic. Um, So it is particularly appropriate 
but um, I will I will weep quietly as you as you play this. <laughs> well, Peter Stanford, as we allow you to dab your cheeks as you listen to <laughs> "You'll Never Walk Alone," it only remains for me to say thank you very much. Thank you. Never Walk Alone, from Carousel, 
by Rogers and Hammerstein. Jennifer Johnston was joined by the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Ian Tracy. And that was the final choice of Peter Stanford, my guest today on Private Passions. And there we leave Michael's discussion with Peter Stanford. Inspired by part of Psalm 139, this one, it's the New Scottish Hymn, Hymns Band, the New Scottish Hymns Bands, and Were I to Cross. Scottish Hymns Band with Were I to Cross, that's parts of Psalm 139. It's worth reading the whole of uh, Psalm, whole of Psalm 139 through, uh, because there's so much in it. But anyway, let's see what David has lined up for us now. Malcolm Guite spoke at the Abbey Summer School in Edinburgh last year. On the last day of the conference, he gave a series of talks about the I Am sayings of Jesus. Here's Malcolm introducing the topic, and he finishes with a poem. You can listen again on the Scott Thoughts podcast. Just go to Spotify and look up Scott Thoughts. John's Gospel uh, gives us this extraordinary 
clearly very carefully thought through set of moments in which Jesus uses this term, I am. And it's done in a particular way in John. Um, in Greek, as you may know, as in Latin, you don't always have to have the sort of verb to be added in, like ego means I am. <laughs> but you can add Amy, and that's what the Greek does, ego Amy. And that's almost a way of like underlining it or putting it in capital letters. It's a big statement. And um, scholars believe that this is a trying to represent in Greek um, something obviously that Jesus would have originally said in, in Aramaic or possibly at that moment quoting Hebrew. And that there's something very special about that phrase, I am. Um, do you remember the story uh, in Exodus? I mean, the extraordinary moment when history turns and everything changes and Moses, who's just minding his own business or rather his father-in-law's sheep, uh, sees the burning bush and turns aside stands on holy ground and God speaks to him and says I'm the God of your fathers a God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and he agrees to go to Egypt and and then he does this beautiful thing <laughs> you know when something's really important to you but you're scared to ask you go it's not for me you understand I'm just asking for a friend you know and so so you remember Moses says when I go to the children of Israel and I say the God of your ancestors has called you and sent me to you. If they ask me, what's his name? <laughs> what should I say? A very polite roundabout way of asking the cause and source of all being, what's your name? And it's a huge question to ask. Because, of course, in that ancient world, a name and nature go together. And, you know, how can I possibly know the name of the one who names everything and puts it into being? You know, I mean, in what sense could you possibly... Could a, a tiny creature speak and summon? <laughs> so there's this great mystery about the name. And the name that's disclosed, you may remember, he says, tell the children of Israel that I am has sent you. And the I am, of course, came to be written down and people didn't want to pronounce that, that precious name, so they would just write the four letters, the, um, which we now think of as being pronounced Yahweh, but um, uh, you didn't say them. So it's this very sacred thing. And it looks as if, in John's Gospel, when Jesus says, I am the light, I am, or even more clearly, right at the beginning, before the other sayings come, before Abraham was, I am, that he was breathing the name of God. And we know that there's something like that going on because you may remember in John 8 when they said to him, he says, Abraham rejoiced and saw my day. And they say, you're not yet 40 years old. And you say, you know, um, you know, have you seen Abraham? And he says, before Abraham was, I am. And you, it's interesting. They don't say, oh, it seems to be a slight difficulty with tenses here. Perhaps we need to go back to language school. Uh, what they actually do is they pick up stones to, to kill him. So they clearly feel that he's spoken the name and he disappears. So there's a sense in which when Jesus says these things, he's fully asserting that he is indeed Yahweh who's come into the midst. And yet he's also saying that this one of, of whom you may make no image whose name you may never speak, chooses to say, 
I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheepfold. I am the bread. I am the vine. If you took these things by themselves and worshipped them, you would be doing the wrong thing. But if you allow these things of your everyday life to be, as it were, the messengers of your Lord to you and the means whereby he chooses to touch you and come to you, then you can do that because he has come to you, because he is Emmanuel, God with you. So um, I wrote um, some time ago a, a sequence of poems on the sayings of Jesus, so 50 sonnets on the sayings of Jesus called Parable and Paradox, where I just felt it was one of those things where I felt, you know, you get tempted both in theology and preaching to say an awful lot about, about Jesus, Jesus as saviour, you know, Jesus as king, Jesus as prophet, Jesus as priest, and you say, it's great. But you can suddenly think to yourself, when was the last time I actually sat down, shut up, and listened to him? And sometimes when you do, it's very piercing, and, you know, so I just felt I should spend a year or so just simply listening and trying to write sonnets that responded to the sayings. And amongst those were these seven I am sayings. But I want to preface them um, by reading the sonnet, which is about that moment where he said before Abraham was, I am, because I think that sets the scene for the rest of them. And um, what I want to do is, I'll say a little bit about each poem, I'll read it. Most of the poems end in a prayer anyway, but I'm going to pause and I'm going to ask us all just to pray to God in Christ as our bread, as our vine, as our light, as our shepherd as our door and just have the time to do it we could do that quietly or aloud we'll just have the space to do that and then we'll go on to the next one but each of these is a response to scripture a response to a saying so if you were able to come and read the scripture out loud just so that we have that voice uh, so do you want to start with the John eight fifty eight? Jesus said unto them Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. So, so a poem as a prayer. O pure I am, the source of everything, the wellspring of my inner consciousness, the song within the songs I find to sing, the bliss of being and the crown of bliss. You iterate and indwell all the instants wherein I wake and wonder that I am. As every moment of my own existence runs over from the fountain of your name. I turn with Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, with everyone whom you have called to be. I turn with all the fallen race of Adam to hear you calling, calling, come to me. With them I come, all weary and oppressed, and lay my labors at your feet and rest. Is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my bed. Thy 
Amy Grant there with Thy Word as a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Ah, but it's back to David again for our next piece. Willie Wright was minister of Pitlochry Baptist Church until his retirement to the Ayrshire coast. Willie has produced a series of talks about hymns and hymn writers. Today we hear one about Francis Ridley Havergal. Francis Ridley Havergal was born in the village of Astley in Worcestershire on the 14th of December 1836. Her father was rector of the parish and Francis was born in the rectory. She was a lively child with fair hair. She was both beautiful and bright. She could read books easily when she was three. When she was four, she was reading the Bible and when she was seven, she was writing simple verses. She was also full of fun and energy. Her mother encouraged her to memorise verses of scripture and hymns of Isaac Watts. But when Frances was twelve, her mother died. Sometime later, she went off to boarding school, Belmont School in London, and it was there that, along with a number of other girls, she came to trust in Christ as her Lord and Saviour. 
Her father married again, and Frances went with them to Germany and attended finishing school at Dusseldorf, where she gained first place in a school of 110. When she was still a young lady, she had memorised the entire New Testament, the Book of the Psalms, Isaiah, and all the minor prophets. She also studied French, German, Italian, as well as Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. She used her time well, including every spare moment. She was confirmed in Worcester Cathedral when she was 18. It was a most meaningful experience, and her heart thrilled at the words used in the service that she may continue thine forever. She loved the outdoors. She took part in a whole variety of sports. She was also a very talented musician, an extremely skilled pianist and a renowned contralto singer. She was much in demand. As far as her singing was concerned, there came a time in her life when she made a conscious decision to lay aside public appearances at concerts and sing, as she put it, only for my king. She not only wrote hymns, but often wrote tunes for them as well. She was thus like her father, who composed hundreds of tunes in his lifetime. Most of her hymns were written, in the first instance, on scraps of paper, and afterwards copied into exercise books, normally with hardly any alterations. She was once asked by a friend how she composed her hymns. This was her reply. I can never set myself to write a verse. I believe my king suggests a thought and whispers me a musical line or two. And then I look up and thank him delightedly. That is how the hymns and poems come. The master has not put a chest of poetic gold into my possession and said, now use it as you like. But he keeps the gold and gives it to me piece by piece, just when he will, and as much as he will, and no more. Later on she said, you see, there is no I can do it at all. That isn't his way with me. I often smile to myself when people talk about a gifted pen or clever verses, because they don't know that it is neither, but something really much nicer than being talented or clever. When Frances Ridley Havergal was 37, she had an experience which was to prove a turning point in her Christian life. For some time she had felt dissatisfied with her Christian life and had longed that things might be otherwise. A friend sent her a little book entitled All for Jesus. She read it carefully and was so impressed by it that she wrote to the author. The truth that she grasped that was to make such a difference in her life and become the hallmark of her future ministry was this, namely that there must be full surrender before there can be full blessing. There and then she consciously yielded herself totally to the Lord and trusted him to keep her. From about the age of 24, Frances had experienced recurring illness, which left her very weak. When she was 38, she caught typhoid and her life hung in the balance for a long time. She eventually recovered, but it left her extremely weak. Despite her bodily weakness over the years, she produced a remarkable output from her desk. She was a keen Bible student and an excellent Bible teacher. She would often have several Bible classes each week, for which she prepared most carefully. She spent hours in personal interviews and counselling sessions, 
and she visited in the cottages and farmhouses. She wrote over six hundred hymns, and produced a number of little books. She was a great supporter of Christian missions, and she took every opportunity to talk naturally about her Savior and His love. Bouts of illness were often her experience, and she died when she was only forty-two, and was laid to rest in Astley Churchyard, within sight of the rectory in which she had been born. She has been described as the great hymn writer of consecration. She lived for her king, in wholehearted devotion and commitment, and encouraged others to do so. And still continues to encourage them through her hymns. Well, he's right. And as Willie quoted there, Francis Ridling Havergal was known as a hymn writer of consecration. And here are the St. Michael singers with Take My Life and Let It Be Consecrated, Lord, to Thee.
Hey, St. Michael singers, and take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. But let's go back to David again for our next piece. Adrian Plass has written a book called The Unlocking, published by the Bible Reading Fellowship. Today we hear him talking about making the most of the talents that we do have and not worrying too much about our weaknesses. Pushing the Limits Now the body is not made up of one part but of many. If the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. There's a real freedom to be found in acceptance of our individual genuine limitations. When, like the prodigal son, we come to ourselves, we do better to offer that self happily to God as our contribution to the body. There's no point in trying to be something we're not. Sometimes it's necessary to be painfully vulnerable. When I was first asked to contribute to the 9.15 Pause for Thought slot on BBC Radio 2, I was very keen, but also very apprehensive. I was keen because this slot occurred in the middle of a very popular secular programme, and I felt reasonably confident that my style would be appropriate. The fear was caused by my awareness that I'm hopelessly defensive when criticised. Negative comments erode my confidence so drastically that my performance is likely to be pale and twittering. Of course I need criticism, but I also need to know that the critic values me or my work in the first place. Pathetic, isn't it? So, when I met the producer, Michael Wakelin, for the first time to discuss my contribution to the programme, it suddenly occurred to me that I could try being totally vulnerable. I might as well tell you, I said rather uncomfortably, that the quality of my second programme will depend almost entirely on the way you react to the first. Michael looked a little taken aback. What do you mean? Tell me it was wonderful. Even if it's not. Whether it is or it isn't. And then the next one almost certainly will be. If you pick the first one to bits, I shall die inside and they'll all be rubbish from then on. And that's what happened. After my first broadcast... He told me it was wonderful. I believed him by an act of the will, and the second one went very well. My talents and abilities are contained within a very fragile vessel, and I depend heavily on other people for help in developing and using them. A clear and uninflated view of our strengths, coupled with an equally realistic awareness of our weaknesses and limitations, cannot but strengthen the body of Christ. Now you might want to say to me, that God will strengthen those weaknesses and reduce those fundamental limitations. Well, yes, he might, but that's his business. And until he does, most of us have to work with what we've got. I wonder what Michael did think of that first program. Pray with me. Father, when I come to the edge of me, I don't want to go walking foolishly forward like those cartoon characters who suddenly realise that they're walking on thin air and plummet to the ground, hundreds of feet below. I'll watch out for the signs. Help me to handle my own limits, Lord. Amen. And we'll have another chapter from 
Adrian Plass and his book The Unlocking next week. Hi Gold Nodi coming up now, it's George Stafford and God McCrae and The Lord is My Shepherd. our programme. Thank you for listening. Our thanks too to Adrian Plass, Willie Wright, Malcolm Guide, Peter Stanford and Michael Barclay for their input and also to Sam Ross for putting the pieces together for us. Eddie Rose is on after news at nine, Colin Phillips at eleven, Dave Barry with the service at one, Anne-Marie at two, Mike Marwick at five, Ian Moyes at seven and Chris Stanton at nine. That's all here on Heartland FM. Meantime, David Wilkie and I, my name's Howard Simpson, will wish you a good day, a good week and God's blessing and we'll leave you with Cathy Burton singing Mighty to Save. (laughs) 